Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 107 and it's early spring 1901. Last week we heard about how General Jan Smuts successfully attacked the 17th Lancers Cavalry, which meant he was now supplied with new rifles, fresh horses and mules, more ammunition than his men could carry, and food, clothing, boots, harnesses, as well as other material urgently required by the commando. First, a note about what was going on in England. Winston Churchill had been elected as an MP for Oldham, partly because of his fame as a survivor of a Boer prisoner of war camp. He began to take issue with the manner in which this war was being fought under Broderick and how the war office was going about the campaign in South Africa. It alarmed Churchill. He believed the military policy was wrong. It had started back in March 1901, three weeks after Churchill's maiden speech in Parliament. Now the future British Prime Minister was involved in a series of debates over the army. By May, Churchill began to oppose what he thought of as a mistaken policy, both in South Africa and generally by the War Office. The main idea presented by Broderick was that the British Army should be modelled on the continental example. He wanted it bigger in order to respond more effectively to acute crisis situations, such as the outbreak of war in South Africa. Churchill thought this was a bad, half-baked idea and said so. He said it was contrary to the nature of the British to have a large standing army. Both sides debated about the Anglo-Boer War, with Broderick believing that the small size of the army in Africa had meant the war had lacked progress, at least from the British point of view. Churchill said the problem in South Africa was not the number of British soldiers. There were other reasons, including a lack of horses and a failure to manage logistics, amongst others. Don't forget that Churchill was a conservative and his attack on Broderick didn't go down well with his party. By mid-July, Churchill had formed a parliamentary faction with four other young conservatives known as the Hooligans, alluding to its leader, Lord Hugh Cecil. The group held weekly debates separate from their party. This began to sharpen Churchill's mind still further, and he slowly shifted his political allegiance to the left, both on the issue of war in South Africa and generally. Not that he supported the Boers, he fully supported Chamberlain the Prime Minister and Alfred Milner, the High Commissioner in South Africa. It's just that Kitchener's military policy was at fault. Because of Churchill's experience of the war as a reporter, then a prisoner of the Boers and finally as an MP, he had become closely acquainted with many senior officers still fighting. He was receiving confidential and excellent intelligence information from these officers, and most updates did not please him. By the 7th of August, things came to a head with Lord Kitchener's notorious proclamation that Boer leaders who failed to surrender by 15th September would be exiled for life. Churchill's informants said this was the wrong way to go, and they were right, as we've heard in previous podcasts. The Boer leaders scoffed at Kitchener, and his order may actually have further bolstered their conviction to drive the English out of South Africa. It also led to an outpouring of sympathy for the Boer cause in the American and European press. So, in the first week of October, Churchill went into action. In a series of six lectures in conservative clubs across his constituency in Oldham and beyond, he talked about men and horses because, in Churchill's words, the army in South Africa lacked suitable men mounted on the best horses. Churchill's gist was that there were more than enough men in South Africa, 250,000 at this point, and in fact, more than 460,000 British soldiers of all types were involved throughout the Boer War. It was the quality of men that was at fault. They were deployed incorrectly too. Fight the Boers on their own terms, said Churchill. 
Create reconnaissance groups. More individual initiative must be allowed and sufficient numbers of good horses must be supplied. You'll hear how a cavalry colonel operating in the Klein Karoo epitomized this form of warfare in a moment. What was really still happening in most theatres of this guerrilla war in South Africa was the British troops were misusing their animals. They were still ostensibly fighting as a conventional army when what was required was to become more nimble. Some officers had begun to show this kind of initiative, but Churchill believed the army was still stifling innovation. 69 columns were active across South Africa. Tens of thousands of men mounted on horses, but most only had one horse per rider. As we've also heard repeatedly through the series, the Boers usually had at least two horses, and sometimes a mule and a horse, but at least two. This meant they could switch mounts quickly and allow their horses to recover even as they rode. Churchill knew this too from his own experience in the cavalry. The only way to trap Smuts and Butter, De Vette and the others was to speed up on the felt. In Churchill's opinion, the situation had actually deteriorated over the previous year after the British had taken the large towns and seized the Transvaal and the Free State. Now it wasn't safe anywhere beyond five kilometres of British positions, either in the former Boer Republics or parts of the Cape and Northern Natal. And the death of his cousin, Lieutenant Sheridan, merely proved his point of view. Remember last week how I described the attack by Smuts on the 17th Lancers and how Sheridan had been shot down at the low rocky ridge. And back in the Cape, Colonel Douglas Haig, that son of a famous whiskey distiller, was riding furiously towards the very same ridge on the afternoon of the 17th of September, 1901. He had got word about the destruction of the 17th Lancers by Smuts. He was under the command of General French, but was directly responsible for the cavalry unit that had been cut to pieces by General Smuts on the 17th of September, as we've heard at Irlands River Port. Haig regarded Smuts and his men as brutes and thieves, or ruffians as he called them. His base was 14 miles away from Ilans River Port, and he leapt aboard his horse to ride to see for himself what had happened on that same day. It took him only an hour and a quarter to gallop the 14 miles, splashing along a waterlogged track part of the way. When he arrived, he was appalled by what he saw. The brutes had used explosive bullets, he wrote later. Four of the six officers were dead, including Churchill's cousin, Lieutenant Sheridan, while Sandeman and Lord Vivian were wounded. Haig was to marry Lord Vivian's sister, just as an aside. It was only the day before that General Haig had sat on that very same ridge where the bodies of his men now lay and picnicked on a hamper of delicacies along with the very same Sandeman. He had been overseeing a training session, now the training had ended with men lying scattered about, dead, wounded. The major weakness of the position was that Sandeman had not secured the high ground to the west of the ridge upon which he now lay injured, and Smuts had spotted this as a point from which he could outflank the 17th Lancers. Combined with the use of captured British khaki uniforms, which confused the British and made it more difficult for the Lancers to spot their enemy, the Boers had dealt his unit a severe blow. As Thomas Pakenham describes, the champagne of the previous day was bitter enough, and Haig issued confirmation of an earlier order as he surveyed his shattered men that all Boers found in British uniforms would be executed immediately. For the next month, a personal duel was to play out along the Stoddenbach between Smuts and Haig. From Haig's point of view, the loss of at least 70 cavalrymen did not detract from his main mission. 
To do this, Haig had more than 2,000 men in three packs or columns, and the shock of Smuts's attack focused their minds somewhat. However, Haig and his commanding officer, General French, both had a major stumbling block. Lord Kitchener continued to micromanage these columns, and Haig was growing more and more critical of the commander-in-chief, as was Churchill back in England. In early September, it was Kitchener who had cabled Major General Fitzroy Hart and told him to move his column north of the Orange River, which then opened up a gap for Smuts to exploit and enter the Cape. General French was beside himself with anger about the commander messing about with his men. French's Field Intelligence Department, or FID, was providing him with extraordinarily accurate information, and Kitchener was not helping matters by remotely controlling these cavalry and mounted infantry formations. It was a bit like Adolf Hitler sitting in his bunker in Berlin and moving pins around on a map without actually witnessing in person the clashes and the conflict. The FID had picked up that there were actually seven Boer commandos moving around inside the Southern Cape. Besides Smuts, there were smaller fragments all based south of the Orange. Commandant Mayberg had 100 men, Fouchier had another 100, Vessels 200, Milan only 15, Tehran had 80 and Skierpers had 250. Smuts was also leading a commander of 250, so there were now roughly 1,000 highly motivated and mobile Boers roaming about inside British territory to the south. About the same number, 1,000 more, were believed to be moving about in the West and Northern Cape. So General French's counter-strategy had three aims. First, they must prevent these severed and separate Boer commandos from combining. Second, they must hustle them so that they could not recruit more Boers in the Cape. And third, they must be worn out and hunted down. Unlike the Transvaal and the Free State, this did not involve a scorched earth policy by the British. They didn't have to burn down farms and force the civilian population into concentration camps. All they had to do was to keep the commandos on the move and deny them fresh food and horses. While the number of Boers in the Cape, now 2,000, was puny in comparison to the almost 30,000 in total still fighting the British in the Transvaal and the Free State, the geography of the Cape meant the British had a problem. The Cape is huge, four times the size of the old republics, with great swathes of desert lairs to the west of the railway. There were steep-sided mountain lairs to the east. But it was in one of these mountain lairs that Colonel Harry Scobell was to strike Commandant Lotta and his 100 Cape rebels and leave them a bloody ruin. This happened shortly after Smuts invaded the Cape. So often I've concentrated on the Boers' ability to direct skirmishes and battles, but in this case, the initiative was firmly in the hands of an extremely gifted British cavalry commander. He outfought the Boers in many battles, and this one at the gorge in the hills above Craddock in the Eastern Cape would be no different. It was in the Tangisberg, which lie between Craddock and Grafrenet, in the small Karoo semi-desert that Scobell was to strike Lotta in a violent battle. Scobell was well known as one of the more dashing cavalry commanders in the Cape. He gave a ball in Craddock, for example, that featured invitations to both officers and enlisted men, which endeared him to the rank-and-file soldier. He eschewed elitism, and his men trusted him because he ate what they ate and rode at the head of the unit. There was nothing effete about Scobell, despite the Craddock party. On the felt, he lived like his men, and he enjoyed looting the Boers, rather than the other way around. 
But it was the speed of his column that put him in a different class from other British columns. He was in the class of the Boer. He had hunted Milan and Kritzinger and Skippers up and down these same mountains through May, and it was largely through his speed and ingenuity that he had caught Kritzinger's commando asleep on a farm in June, killing six and capturing 25 others, and eventually driving Kritzinger out of the Cape entirely. Since then, Scobell had further refined his counter-commando tactics by adopting Boer supply methods, discarding wagons in favour of mules, and carrying three-day rations for a six-day hunt, which meant a gain in speed, and he was not averse to eating a wandering sheep or two to offset his supply limitations. He also made his men and animals practice climbing mountains at high speed and in the dark. His column could climb like goats. As Smuts and his men fought along the Storenbach, and before their decimation of the 17th Lancers, Scobell was on Commandant Lotter's tail. The Boer had no idea that Colonel Scobell was being directed by far better scouts than he had. African intelligence scouts, black locals, who knew the land backwards. The rainy and windy weather also played into the Englishman's hands. To compound Lotta's problems, Scobell had 1,100 men of the 9th Lancers, the Cape Mounted Rifles, a coloured unit, and the Yeoman combined and outnumbered Lotta 10 to 1. Lotta's men were Cape rebels. If caught, they could be executed as traitors. These rebels, wrote Scobell, know they were fighting with a rope around their necks, and it makes them fight very well. It was a night ride with the plan to attack the Boers at dawn. Scobel believed they were hiding on a farm in the Tangesberg Gorge called Grundluf. Actually, the 100 men of the Boer commander were not in the farmhouse area. They were sleeping inside a sheep shed hundreds of yards away. It was about 30 feet long and 20 feet wide with a corrugated iron roof and stone walls. This would become a charnel house. Before the light of dawn, Scobel sent a squadron of 9th Lancers, led by Lord Douglas Compton, to recon the kraal near the shed. At the doorway to the shed, Compton somehow managed to drop his revolver and dismounted to retrieve it. That's when he glanced into the shed and saw 100 sleeping boers curled up in their blankets. This must have been one of the strangest sights of the war. A single British cavalry officer standing a few feet away from 100 sleeping boers. He must have rubbed his eyes in disbelief if he had enough time. Some of the Boers woke up and opened fire, while Lord Compton grabbed his revolver, mounted his horse and galloped past the doorway. Then over a thousand British troops opened fire on the sheep shed with its corrugated iron roof at close range, smashing and grinding the stones and the metal in half an hour of frenzied shooting. And the Boers fired back. Not much inside the shed could have survived, and indeed the result was carnage. Trooper Edinburgh wrote later of his experience as he entered the kraal. Seventy years later, he wrote about this moment in some pride in what's known as the boy's own paper. Yet his writings at the time were tinged more by remorse. It was hard to distinguish Boer from Britain when the fighting stopped. Edinburgh entered and wrote, Eight were lying dead, huddled under a wall. Men were lying about with half their faces shot away, blood spouting out of their chests, thighs, etc. In fact, the place was like a butcher's shop. Some men making awful noises, groaning, clutching the ground and rolling in the dirt in their agony. It was awful. The British buried the dead together. Thirteen Boers and ten British were placed in a donga, 
or eroded hole, and covered with large stones from the wall. A symbolic final resting place for implacable foes, buried in the same grave there in a gorge, in a beautiful Clan Karoo mountain range. But Scobel had utterly scuppered Lotta's commander. There were 46 wounded Boers beside the 13 dead, and 61 others were prisoners. Lotta himself was captured and would be executed in due course, along with seven other Boers who were Cape rebels. Haig had just been congratulating himself about the success and the executions when General Smuts shattered the 17th lances. You can see this Cape struggle was far from being a simple matter of Boers succeeding or the English victorious. It was bitter, hard fighting, involving skilled men of all races, black and white, determined to finish each other off in sometimes hand-to-hand confrontations. So much for those who thought the war was almost over. Scobell and the other English commanders had learnt a great deal about fighting on the felt, while the Boer leadership began to realise that the British were working more closely with black South Africans in their planning and logistics, their intelligence gathering, their guarding and patrolling, blockhouse building. The Boers were also beginning to realise that the black people who ringed their republics were on the move. They were mobilising, as word reached these far-flung areas that the Boer foe could be attacked. Their homesteads were more isolated and exposed than before. The support networks constrained. There was looting to be had. General Smuts in particular was aware of this danger and wrote about it constantly. But we must halt at this point and take stock of our story. Next week, we'll rejoin Rates and Smuts as they evade General Haig and these two excellent soldiers went on a duel for a month for control of the Cape. Meanwhile, some administration. I want to say thank you so much to John, who has donated a significant amount to help pay for my SoundCloud hosting fees. It was an unexpected joy to receive your mail and Twitter message, John. Thank you so much for your warm note. I am in your debt. Also, Thomas, who lives in Florida in the USA, thank you again for the significant support you've given me over the past year and enjoy the Rugby World Cup. And also thanks to Canadian military historian Susan Raby-Dunn in Ontario, who is preparing a talk about that great Canadian soldier E.W.B. Morrison. If you remember, he featured in our episode 60, The Heroic Canadians of Lillifontaine, fighting in the Eastern Transvaal. A big thanks for sharing the note about your Facebook Canadian War History Tours page, Susan. I'm honoured to have been contacted by such a top-notch historian. I'm sure many listeners will find the Facebook page interesting. By the way... Morrison's memoir of the First World War was finally published in 2017 with the introduction written by Susan. The book is published by Heritage Books and is entitled Morrison, the long-lost memoir of Canada's artillery commander in the Great War. I wish you all the best for your presentation on Morrison and John McRae coming up this month, Susan. And to Evert in the Netherlands, what an illuminating list of pictures you sent me and to take so much time and trouble to do so is really humbling. Hartlich bedankt. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. And if you want to contact me, you can send an email through the website abwarpodcast.com or on Twitter at Des Latham. So until next week, goodbye. Bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my Sari woont. Daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom, daar woont my Sari Mare. Daar onder in die mil 
Betty Crew.